0: Hi, this is Tom Lutz, Editor-in-Chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Before we get to this week's radio show, I just want to remind everybody that we are in the middle of our winter fun drive. We get to do the radio show. We get to bring you the reviews and essays and interviews that we have every day on the website. We get to bring you the quarterly journal and all of the other good and interesting and fun stuff that LARB does because of the support of listeners and readers like you. This is the time of year when we need your help the most. We have a matching fund that is going to match every dollar that you give us. Now's the time to give. Thanks so much.
1: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor of LARB, And I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Today, we've got an exciting conversation with Russian-American journalist Masha Gessen about her new book, The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. I found this fascinating to read just from like a historical perspective. It's a period that I know virtually nothing about, that transition from Soviet era into kind of Putin's Russia. And I just loved hearing all of the stories. And then it occurred to me something that even though I've known you for a long time that we don't talk about that much is that you're actually similar to that generation, right?
0: I am. Yeah. So the way that Masha Gessen structures her book is that she speaks with seven young men and women who Mm -hmm. were born before the collapse of the Soviet Union and sort of grew up into the collapse in the 90s and at this point in the more near past Mm
2: -hmm.
0: have been figuring out the political world of Putin's Russia ever since and yeah one of the really fascinating things about it was that I started reading it and I was like oh well that's me essentially (laughs) but you know we left so when did you guys leave so I was born in Georgia in Tbilisi and 86. I feel like I'm revealing too much information here, but (laughs) that's fine. Does a lady tell her age? Sure. (laughs) It's a new era. Anyway, and we moved to Moscow after the fall of the union. There was essentially a civil war in Georgia and then lived in Moscow for a few years and moved to New York in 94. So I am around the generation that Masha Gessen begins with and, and sort of focalizes the broader history of the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of Putin.
1: So obviously you were a child during this time, but like, how did you both experience that era? Again, I'm not asking you to give your whole biography here, but it's interesting to me because like, how did you experience that era? And then what was it like reading about people that were kind of an approximate age and political relationship to yourself?
0: Right. Well, in a way, it was almost reading an alternative past,
1: Mm. for myself in
0: some ways just because we didn't stay oh like what would have
1: happened if i had stayed there right and
0: so so that was really sort of bizarre to put myself in a position of the generation that left and the generation that stayed and the very divergent kind of paths that we took and in many ways i think god that we didn't stay because of it's a mess over there obviously and what was it like it was terrible Yeah, It was absolutely terrible. And it's interesting to focalize that conversation through a younger generation just because, and I think Masha Gessen gets this through the book, in that the chaos was palpable even to a child. Right, you've
1: described that to me about being on the streets of Moscow and just it felt chaotic in the street.
0: Yeah, and it felt like the adults didn't quite know what was happening. So that comes through even if you don't quite understand what is happening or why. Right, And it was interesting to note how the central characters appeared to the people in the book. I do remember at a certain point, I was Gorbachev on the TV, Yeltsin on the TV, Bill Clinton on the TV was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of the time I spent watching a telenovela called Santa Barbara, which was much more relaxing. But so it's interesting the way that a child experiences that kind of mm. major shift in history and in political history because it's scattered, it's fragmented. But you get the gist, I think, Yeah. at least in terms of understanding that nothing is quite the same as it was before right. and that there are certain people who are guiding this change. And you know you can recognize them, but you don't quite understand who they are or what they do. And so it was really interesting reading the book. And it also made me sort of go back to my parents and ask what school did they send me to in Moscow? How did they decide which school I went to? And how they eventually made the decision to leave. So it was fascinating.
1: Well, let's get to that interview because I have to say, I... Adore and immensely respect Masha Gessen. I mean, to me, she's one of those epitomes of, like, fearlessness and a real search for the truth of what has happened. She's obviously speaking about the Russian context, but you feel that she would take that kind of care and consideration to almost anything that walks inside of her, like, laser-focused gaze. So let's get to it. Let's. We're excited to have in the studio with us today Masha Gessen. Gessen is a Russian and American journalist, well-known for her insightful reporting on LGBT struggles and politics worldwide, as well as for her outspoken criticism of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. In addition to her writing in nearly every major publication of record, Gessen is the author of several works of important nonfiction, including The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot, Her most recent book, The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, was published in October by Riverhead Books and is a finalist for the National Book Award. Welcome to the show, Masha. Thank you. Great to be here. So if we can just kind of open up, can you explain why you chose, I think there's seven narratives that structure this book. Why did you choose those particular narratives? And what were you trying to do in terms of telling a different story about this history?
3: Right. There are seven people in the book, and they actually fall into two categories. Four of them were born in the 1980s and were children, but conscious children during the 1990s, which was the reason that I looked for them. Mm. I wanted, I have been obsessed for a long time with sort of the condition of growing up in the 1990s when, on the one hand, parents were in all sorts of weird states, they were scared and excited and confused and elated. They were enjoying freedom and, and fearing freedom. And we kind of know that, but whereas those are contradictory but perhaps wonderful states for adults, I think they're awful for children. <laughs> right? It, those are not the kinds of parents that you want to grow up with. And what I've thought for a long time, and this was my hypothesis going in, mm-hmm was that there was a tension between sort of the chaos that the parents' emotions projected and the stability projected and the clarity projected by Soviet movies, which were still on television. And I also, of course, wanted to use this road to sort of get at the issue of Russia never having had a reckoning with its ideological and political past. And having, you know, Soviet movies on television in the 1990s, which is a little bit like having, you know, Nazi propaganda on television in post-World War II Germany, it's a little mind-boggling. So that was the starting point for looking for people who were children in the 1990s. There were a lot of other criteria that I applied to who I wanted to be in the book not least of them, of course, that they had to be willing to sit with me for an endless number of hours talking about things that may have seemed absurd to them, like, what did you see on television, and what did you see out the window, and what did it smell like, and then what happened, and all sorts of minutiae of their lives, because I really wanted to be able to write the book from sort of the inside of their heads. And then the other group of three people are intellectuals, a sociologist, a psychoanalyst, and a philosopher. And the reason they're in the book is that, first of all, like any journalist, I needed intellectuals to sort of affirm or contradict or otherwise frame my hypotheses about what happened in the country. But there was also a built-in problem, which is that the humanities and the social sciences were very nearly destroyed under the Soviets. You actually say that
1: it's like there was really no sociology during the Soviet Uh, Russia, yeah.
3: It was practically a banned science, and the same thing happened to psychoanalysis and most kinds of psychology, except for Pavlovian behaviorism. So the other problem that I was trying to really narrate is a country that's unable to know itself. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a really important part of the story, because a country like a person who has no words, no intellectual tools for understanding what's happened to them, cannot move on. Mm. Right.
0: Something that I wanted to ask you, just sort of circling back to where this project began, is you yourself, of course, are sort of in between the two ages that you say that you were so obsessed with, the sort of parent age and the child of the 80s age. How did you find yourself sort of Interacting or understanding this history or the story? Or did you really need another set or many sets of eyes to really begin to look at it?
3: It's an interesting question. I don't know that age has a whole lot to do with it for me. I mean, I think that my sort of status as straddling two cultures and two countries is, in a sense, much more important. Mm-hmm. Not that age is unimportant, but I don't belong to a generation of Russians who came of age in the 80s either. I could have, but I wasn't there in the 80s. I came to the United States in 1981 when I was 14 and was educated here. So for me, I think what I really have always tried to use in my writing is the benefit that I get from being both an insider and an outsider. People talk to me as though I were Russian most of the time because my Russian is native and we have a lot of the same sort of cultural and literary points of reference that are so important to having a comfortable conversation. But at the same time, I always have almost like a second pair of eyes in my head, because unlike a lot of my contemporaries, I did have access to the humanities in the American education system. I did obsess with critical theory when I was in my late teens and early 20s, which is something that my peers didn't have the benefit of.
1: Right. One of the other things that I was thinking, Masha, as I was reading it is that so many of the I mean, they're real people, but I guess I think of them as characters because they also represent kind of larger trajectories of life during this period that you're studying, but that many of them don't realize the kind of historical gravity of or significance of events as they're living through them, usually because, like all of us, they're kind of tied up in their day-to-day minutiae, you know, like their love affairs, like going to school, you know, all those kind of things. I'm wondering if in some ways, like, we're perennially at risk of this kind of blindness in the present and wondering if you have any sense of, like, what moments we should be noticing or, like, kind of how to maintain... A presence or a hold on what's happening in the present so that we don't have to merely be reactive, because in many ways, in the cases that you lay out, it's too late by the time that you realize the change that has already that the country has already undergone. So I'm wondering a little bit about what you think in terms of how we can kind of maintain more of an objective seems the wrong word, but it's something closer to what I mean, an objective hold on the present. And then what role, obviously, as a journalist, kind of what role does journalism play in directing us to the significance of moments as they're happening?
3: That's such a great question.
1: I fear it might be impossible uh, to answer, but but we'll try. uh,
3: of course it's impossible to answer like all great questions right but we can get somewhere sort of in attempts to answer it i don't know if i would call it blindness because i don't know that we're actually like meant to have a historical perspective while living through history mm. but something that i thought a lot about when writing this book and especially when i was figuring out how to structure it was provisions issues of distance both distance i mean not literal distance although that too but mostly distance of voice where i was situating myself as the narrator which I tried to to not do the standard, and there's nothing wrong with the standard, right? But I tried to do something different, which is sort of the, st- the standard journalistic distance is kind of the middle distance,
2: mm-hmm.
3: where you're not inside the head of your subject, but you're not that far outside either, right? Right. Standing right next to them, or maybe across the room.
2: Yeah,
1: intimate um, proximity.
3: Right. Yeah. But what I tried to do was was either be uh, um, was right either from the interior or from sort of a bird's eye which is much more the way that sort of a traditional Russian novel is structured. It either has the voice from inside the character's head or the omnipotent narrator who is narrating the movement of troops. And that has something to do with your question, right? This is a very roundabout way of answering it. But I think that journalists often work in the very short term. And that's usually our task, right? Mm -hmm. To sort of tell what happened yesterday while using some context from the day before and perhaps the month before. Right. And that's the journalistic time frame. That's not designed to give us a sense of the historic significance of events. And I think that it's really important for journalists to interact with people who think in different times, right? Academics think in a very different time. Right. They think in decades and centuries. And when an academic tells you that they write about contemporary events, they mean events of the last 60 years. <laughs> right. Uh, right, right. <laughs> and I think that that's something I do generally in my work. I use a lot of academic sources and, and I talk to a lot of academics. And I really think it's hugely important tool in my bag that, that allows me to write about something in a different way and i hope in a more interesting way well let me follow that up then because
1: immediately after the election of donald trump I was in Palm Springs with some friends for Thanksgiving and the books that I chose to read were The Handmaid's Tale, which is a terrible thing to read right after that particular <laughs> election. And then I also started reading again another helpful but not necessarily very buoying book which is Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. So this brings me to a little
3: bit of light readings in Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs>
1: right. Well, the setting was very nice, but you know, the uh-huh. reading not so it didn't lift my spirits so much. But I am wondering this question that you have about the kind of different time that say like academics or these discourses around history and readings of the present that exist kind of in parallel and sometimes intersect with journalism. I wonder sometimes as I'm reading origins of totalitarianism, especially across the past year and rereading it, obviously, it seems like, oh, my God, there's a one-to-one relationship. I'm seeing her describe something that now I am actually feel like I'm seeing in the present. Is there a danger sometimes to those kind of transhistorical mappings, right? Because she's describing from historical distance a very particular moment and development as she can see it then. But is it dangerous sometimes for us to try to do this direct mapping Of what's happened then onto our time now and also as I increasingly think well I could read in some sense your book and be like oh my god in some ways what Masha Gessen is telling us happened in Russia is also potentially happening here but that elides a lot of cultural and temporal particularity to both of those conditions so what do you think the value of that kind of more trans historical or different to use your words a kind of different approach to time might be?
3: Well it's the only thing we know all we know is it's what's happened before. The only thing that can possibly make us fare better than our grandparents is the awareness of what happened to our grandparents,
2: right? Right. Um,
3: which doesn't mean that... Any time period maps onto any other, nor does it mean that there's a direct comparison possible. Well, actually, comparison is always possible, right? But that there's but the a, direct
1: um, comparison—that's yeah—is what I mean. Sometimes right. can make us misrecognize maybe things or not think fluidly right. enough.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not possible across countries and across cultures either. Sort of unquestioned comparison is not uh, unchallenged comparison is not possible. Mm. But that's all we have, right? That's all we have to make us smarter. And so I think of it as giving us optics, I mean, I think that what's made me a useful journalist over the last year is just this weird pair of binoculars that I have that I brought with me from Russia. And it's not because I'm more brilliant than anybody else, it's just that I have this weird experience of having covered Vladimir Putin for nearly 20 years can you just I'm explain sorry, what sorry.
1: those binoculars are like how would you account for what your particular vision is like what you're able to see what lenses you can bring to this work
3: so i think that first of all to be very clear i see things that are there right oh yeah <laughs> no it's not fabulation what, what Yeah, makes, right what makes this kind of writing useful and i'm not the only person doing it People like Timothy Snyder, who have studied 20th century history, people like Ruth ben Git, who studied Italian fascism, people like Alexander Stewie, who has written about Berlusconi. Right? We all have different kinds of glasses or binoculars that are useful for seeing things that other people can see too, but once they're pointed out, right? Mm, mm, mm. So, like for example, when Trump, when the Washington Post and other publications were obsessively fact-checking Trump's lies. What I saw was that this was not a useful tool because I had seen this kind of lying before and again people who had covered Berlusconi had also seen this exact kind of lie right. before which is a different kind of lie than than the normal political lie the normal political lie is aimed at convincing you to believe something that's not true mm-hmm. right Trump's lies are aimed at asserting power over reality right so he makes blatantly provably untrue claims and insists on making them to shift sort of our perceptions of reality well and And to say say that he controls our perception is his ability to shift
1: it sorry that it's his ability to control what our perception is to say well you may know very well that but nonetheless i'm saying this is the way it is and i have the power it's an assertion of authority
3: exactly Exactly. And it's also a constant assertion of his access to our brains, basically. Like, you cannot ignore what the president of the country says about reality, even if it is blatantly untrue. And every time he says something that is blatantly untrue, it alters our perception of that thing, even if we continue to be aware of what is actually true. Right.
1: You're listening to LARB radio out recorded at KPFK Studios in North Hollywood. We've been speaking with Masha Gessen, author of The Future is History How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
0: We have Garnett Cardigan in the studio with us today. Garnett is a critic. And a writer. He's one of the writers featured in the New Freemans, The Future of New Writing. And Garnett is here to recommend a book for us. Garnett, what will you be recommending?
4: I'll cheat and recommend a pair. And recommend a pair from the same person, Robert MacFarlane, someone who's very well known across the Atlantic, but is not known anywhere close to what he deserves to be known here in the US. A wonderful, wonderful writer about nature and our relationship to it and the way it transforms us and the way we transform it. And he wrote a terrific trilogy, you know, over the last couple of years, Mountains of the Mind, followed by The Wild Places, mm. followed by My Favorite of the Lot, The Old Ways. And he has a new book out, which is ostensibly for children. But it's for children the way Pixar movies are for children, okay. that it speaks in multiple levels. It speaks with multitudes. It speaks to children, but also adults. It's a book called The Lost Words. A decade ago, Oxford University Press had done the Oxford Junior Dictionary and left out quite a bit of words that are words you expect children to know. And so they had stuff like broadband, while a lot of words describing the natural world weren't there. And their argument was that they wanted words that are frequently used by children in the current environment. And he had written quite a strong essay about them doing that but responded with this lovely illustrator Jackie Morris now with a book called The Lost Words and in it it's this beautifully illustrated book gorgeous book but a book that insists on the importance of vocabulary and the way vocabulary has this deep relationship to our imagination and so, an impoverished vocabulary for children but also us adults is also an impoverished imagination but also an insistence that we're increasingly moving away and away and away from the natural world and you see it reflected in our habits of mind in our behavior in our relationship to the natural world but you also see it in the words at our disposal you see it in our impoverished and our reduced vocabulary the ways in which we can't speak about the natural world anymore and so rather than fields and green and blue he's found marvelous ways to show the Multitudinousness and richness and beauty and complexity and diversity of the natural world and draws back to it by way of vocabulary. I mean, one of the best real estates on social media is his Twitter feed, in which day after day it's in a word of the day and a wonderful word describing something about the natural world. And he does it again here in this book with the help of Jackie Morris, a sumptuous, gorgeous beautiful book on the importance of vocabulary for drawing us to the natural world. And along with that, I'm going to recommend the book that's really for grown-ups, Landmarks, which is a book that also is about a way in which our language can be a way of re-enchanting the world to us. So I commend both of them, The Lost Words, which is for children, the way Pixar movies only for children, for children and adults, and Landmarks, another book about re-enchanting our relationship with the world.
0: And the author again for our listeners?
4: Robert McFarlane.
0: Thank you so much, Garnett. That sounds wonderful. We've been speaking with essayist Garnett Cudigan.
1: You're listening to the LARP Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Masha Gessen, author of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia.
0: I was wondering, and that also now seems like a particularly powerful force, is nostalgia, right, which comes up in your book a lot, and is also coming up in our day-to-day political reality, and a cultural reality, too, with the remakes and the Fuller House and whatever else. Do you feel like you have a particular nostalgia for anything, or that any time that might have passed, or any place that might have passed, or are you so suspicious of it that you don't (laughs) feel susceptible to that? It's such a tempting feeling,
3: you know, I'm fifty years old, so if I didn't feel any nostalgia ever, I think there would be something really wrong with me <laughs> <laughs> i uh, I wish I were younger, I wish I were more hopeful. I wish I could pull three all-nighters in a row and mm. still function we'll here. so of course, of course, I'm nostalgic, but I think that thinking about nostalgia and reading about it, and also, you know, the book is dedicated to the memory of my best friend, Sidlana Bohm, who wrote the book on nostalgia, called The Future of Nostalgia. So it's also informed very much by her unseen presence. But I think I'm so aware of nostalgia that I'm also aware of the nature of just missing myself in the world and not necessarily mm. missing the circumstances mm. that I inhabit yeah. which is what we often mistake nostalgia for being.
1: I was very fascinated by the kind of writing that you did about Yuri Levada, in particular <laughs> his very pioneering, the first of its kind, literally pioneering, sociological study of what's been called Homo Sovieticus, basically what the socialist Russia population was like. And the three kind of takeaways that he seems to have is that they were fearful, isolated, and also authority loving, right? There seems to be this sense that that kind of ebbed during the 1990s with the move out of the Soviet period. And then in your account, post 90s, that kind of reemerges again. So one of my questions here is, what is that persona? Is it historically specific? Is it historically specific to just conjunctions of particular events and epochs? Or is it just something that develops in isolation? And then kind of how can we contest that sort of impulse, which also seems to me deeply human, especially being afraid and feeling isolated? Because in the US, I see this very strange kind of, for as much as the right loves the idea and loves to talk constantly about love of freedom, they also seem to be embracing the very dictatorial and authoritarian tendencies of Trump. And there seems to be, in a certain part of the population, a longing for what we usually talk about when we talk about Putin, this kind of strong man that will just say, everything's going to be fine, and I just will then abdicate all authority to a leader who will give me the belief that everything will just be fine.
3: Ways of thinking about it, and I don't think that any particular way is necessarily right, but I find them all useful. So, Levada was concerned with what he hypothesized was the specific cultural institution of the Homo Sovieticus, right, the Soviet Mm man. And Sometimes the term Homo Sovieticus is bandied about in and, and really sort of disgusting and basically racist ways. Right. He was referring to something that he defined, right? I mean, first of all, the Bolshevik Revolution had as its project the creation of new man. And it's reasonable to assume that some sort of new man emerged from a society that was unlike any society mm-hmm. that the world had seen before.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And to make it even simpler, we all develop certain skills for living in or surviving in particular kinds of circumstances, particular kinds of societies. So he hypothesized what amounts to a set of behaviors and coping skills, right? Survival skills in the Soviet person. He also hypothesized that the skill set, this cultural institution of the Homo Seredikus would die off once it was no longer needed.
2: Mm, okay. So
3: his hypothesis was that in the late 1980s, when they went out to study the Soviet Union, essentially for the first time sociologically, that they would discover that Homo Sovietics existed, but that it was generationally bound. Because by that point, a whole generation had passed since Stalin's terror ended. And so people didn't need the skills for surviving state terror. A simple way to put it is that Levada was very sociologically smart and very psychologically not. Because those kinds of habits, behaviors, skills, don't actually die off once they're no longer needed. We know this from trauma psychology.
2: Mm.
3: We know that there's such a thing as intergenerational trauma. And we know even more simply that when a person is no longer living in a traumatic situation, they don't actually become happy, healthy people capable of forming wonderful, healthy relationships unless (laughs) they get a lot of help. Right. unless there's an intervention and treatment, all sorts of things. So Levada's study showed in 1989 that Homo Sovieticus existed, and they thought that it also showed that Homo Sovieticus was generationally bound. But when they went back to redo the surveys in 94, 99, and then every five years after that, they discovered that the generational hypothesis didn't hold up. And that, in fact, in the 2000s, after Putin came to power, the cultural institutions of Soviet society were reactivated. So that answers the specific part of your question that has to do with Levada. As for sort of authority, loving, fearful personality, certainly Levada didn't discover that. And we have the work of wonderful exiles from Nazi Germany who wrote about their authoritarian personality. Mm -hmm. And Theodor Adorno argued that the authoritarian personality was actually a fixture of industrialized society and a fixture of capitalism and that... In the United States, the authoritarian personality was very much present in a large part of the population. And actually, I'm surprised that more people these days aren't reading Eric From and uh, Escape mm. from Freedom, which is a much shorter, much more readable book than The Origins of Totalitarianism. Yes. <laughs> and it's an absolutely brilliant book. Basically, and From has come back into vogue among social psychologists for a different reason, because he wrote about malignant narcissism, which is a concept relevant to our time. But, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, but from also wrote about reactions to freedom. And he had this very useful framework that there are two kinds of freedom. There's freedom from which we all want, right? We want the freedom from being told what to do by our parents or our schools or any authority figures. But there's also freedom, too, which is the freedom to invent oneself. And that freedom comes with uncertainty, with a lack of vision of one's future. And that freedom sort of descends on people during particular historical times. For example, at the end of uh, feudal societies, when people were no longer born into a trade and uh, onto a street where they were going to spend the rest of their lives, that The burden of freedom, too, could become too much, and it necessitated an escape from freedom. And so Fromm theorized, writing in the late 1930s, he theorized that Europe was living through a time like that, which is why authoritarian leaders were emerging all over the Western world. And I think that we are living through a time like that now, Mm. for all sorts of reasons that we know, right? But there's certainly a lot of people who are feeling the unbearable burden of freedom, too.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great place to end. The unbearable burden of freedom is seems yeah.
1: appropriate. Well, we never said that Masha Gessen was going to come here providing wild, uh, light, <laughs> lighthearted,
0: <Yeah>. yes, lighthearted <laughs> advice. Thank you so okay, so much for you. talking to us. All okay,
3: right, thank you very much. Thank bye. you. Bye bye.
1: We've been speaking with Masha Gessen, author of *The Future Is History: How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia*. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.